Welcome to Trash Compactor. I'm Josh, and joining me today is Bracey. Hello. Whoa, we're not prepared for that. And Jeff. <laughs> hey, everybody. What's up? And today we're going to be talking about the behind-the-scenes material of Star Wars and our memories of it and how I think among this group in particular, it was, I think, formative is a good word. Is it not an accurate word? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think certainly for me, my first encounter with the behind the scenes material was from Star Wars to Jedi, that documentary made around the time of Return of the Jedi, because it came with the VHS box set from like 1990, which I know you had, Bracey. Yes. And I actually just rewatched a little bit of it just to uh, to refresh. And I did not realize how many little sound bites that I had taken from that and just used throughout my life. Like, hello from TV land. Or oh, yeah, uh, yeah. even the guy who uh, uh, was working the tail, he was like, backwards and forwards. Backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. I was you like, say oh that all, You say that all the time. I, I didn't even realize it was from that. I just, I was just like, oh my God, this is, this is me. This is where I came from. I did. From. I knew. <laughs> and whenever you would bust out with that, I was like, wow, Gracie really is a, from Star Wars to Jedi fan. Uh, what about you, Jeff? What was your first encounter with Star Wars? behind the scenes material if you can recall you know i led such a star wars filled childhood that it's hard for me to like have a distinct memory of any particular one thing because it all floods together because i pretty much just did star wars all the time in every way i could possibly find for so long but i do remember that one of the first people who stood out to me in terms of the making of the films uh, was always Ben Burt. And mm. there's there's a bunch of different behind-the-scenes stuff of Ben Burt working uh, on the different sounds. Um, but whether it's him, you know, hitting the, the uh, metal telephone wires with a hammer to get the blaster sounds or recording bears or coming up with R2s, like, that process fascinated me and i surprisingly didn't go into sound at all like <laughs> of all the things i do sound isn't one of them but especially in a pre-digital age where you couldn't just like invent sounds and you had to like physically combine tracks to make new noises that didn't exist before that's my earliest strong memory of behind the scenes stuff is just seeing ben burt coming up with crap out of his Burtox. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, he's all over the behind-the-scenes material. When you get into the prequels, he edited The Phantom Menace along with uh, George Lucas. And he was also there, like, from the very beginning. I mean, more or less. Like, he was one of the first hires collecting his sounds with his little Nagra, like, flying all over the country, all over the world, and just, like, you know, you know, building up a library. He's really a genius. Do either of you remember if he was the one talking to John Williams about, like, Basically, in Return of the Jedi, yes. making the voices and giving yes. him the kind of the rundown of like, yes. this is this is what we discovered along the way. And this is why we can't just like speed things up. It sounds fake. And you can't just like yeah. make up a language because you just end up using English sounding things anyway. And it's like, oh, this is fantastic. I love that they like just dove in um, and really learned that. Yeah, the other night I rewatched from Star Wars to Jedi. And I know that exchange that you're talking about it. And yeah, so that was Ben Burt who was going through all that, explaining it to John Williams. In addition to from Star Wars to Jedi, like kind of from the same period, there was the making of Star Wars, 
from 77. And then there was special effects, the making of Empire Strikes Back. And then there was classic creatures making a return to the Jedi. And I remember the first time I saw all of those in their entirety was um, in the the 90s for one of the sci-fi channels, like Star Wars marathons. And they showed all of those. And it was the first time that I had seen that stuff, which was like wild to me because I didn't know that they existed. I had the from Star Wars to Jedi VHS. But then I was like, wait a minute, like there's there's more of this. Yeah, that was the stuff that I always tracked down. Like, I mean, aside from having, thankfully, I've moved on from physical media and am now saving a lot more money. But I had all the releases on VHS. I never had uh, a Laserdisc player, but I got the Star Wars Laserdiscs because the quality Same. was so good. And Same. Then, if I never had a player, but I had the discs. And I also had a bootleg VHS that I got from the dealer's room at a Star Trek convention, somebody like made of a VHS copy of all of the Laserdisc special features. And I used to watch that that video that I got at a Star Trek convention in like 1994. <laughs> that was the stuff that I tracked down. And then books like Skywalking and whatnot, because it's just the, the process was at least as interesting to me as the films themselves. And while, you know, nowadays there'd be a million blogs covering it, there are or whatnot, but um, uh, just being analytical about seeing what happened, like, um, you know, one of my favorite observations is the evolution of Pundababa, right? Who went from a character with barely any screen time in the cantina, <laughs> you know, to being the walrus man figure because no one knew what his name was and Kenner had to make something up and whatnot to, to eventually um, between the, the role-playing game and later and the decipher. decipher card game and all that. Yeah. Uh, well, decipher got all their stuff from West end games. Right. Um, you know, I worked with decipher for a while uh, on that game and like called the guys at West end up whenever they needed to make something. <laughs> like, Do you already have this somewhere? Uh, and just pour through all the different manuals and supplements and stuff. Because at the time, no one had written any of that crap down. So anyway, the, the, the process of a minor character that doesn't even, even have an on-screen name evolving into, like, I, he got his own book at some point. Like, there's a, there's a published novel in there? the original 90s EU. <laughs> Uh, uh, that has that deals with Pundababa, I believe. Uh, and that came out of nowhere, up. and that came just because the world that was created had all these little pockets of things, chock full of things of people like, I want to know more about that, I want to know more about that. And that has been the most enduring takeaway of Star Wars when it comes to my filmmaking and my storytelling for me was just creating all this stuff that you don't spend time explaining or talking about to create that sense with the audience of them wanting to know more. Yeah, well, that's really interesting because I agree with you. Something that I learned, um, and I don't think I ever really articulated it the way you just did. I'm always like aware of how you can just sketch something and not have to explain it, knowing that the audience's mind will, they will either feel it in themselves or 
the idea that it's even good to leave some things unexplained or unexplored because that's what creates the engagement from the viewer's mind and what's on screen. Like they are recreating a facsimile of it in their own mind and, and kind of embroidering upon it and creating their own version of it. I mean, leaving room yeah. for that is important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And back in that time, like we were in a serious drought of Star Wars material. So if you were into Star Wars, like you didn't like I, I know most people today can't imagine it, but like you just didn't have everything lying around. So any material that you got behind the scenes gave you like just this window into the world that you're just like longing to get more from. And I, I, I personally just remember um, wanting to just be a fly on the wall. Like I was, I just, I think what made me a Star Wars fan is actually just the desire to just be in any of the suits in the background. Like, you know, when I realized <laughs> like, oh, I really want to be like, I, like, I really care about this. Cause I was like, I didn't care about which alien, which character. I didn't care if it, I never saw my face. I just loved watching the process happen um uh uh through uh through star wars to uh from star wars to jedi like seeing that happen just it was so inspiring well that's really interesting because what you're articulating is like you you see you get that window into the process of making it and your reaction was i want to be a part of that like i want to be there right yeah. i don't care how but i want to be there which is what i thought was how everybody felt but from having conversations i've realized that behind the scenes material wasn't as formative to every star wars fan the way that it was for some of us i mean certainly among this group i think but i do think there's something to what you're saying like the idea that in the desert of available material you would latch on to whatever anything. to anything yeah. <laughs> well i mean anything. we all went into filmmaking is that part of it i mean because if you don't if you're not a filmmaker maybe the behind the scenes wasn't as big of a draw but. well but i mean for me though what i'm trying to articulate is is seeing that material at least for me was the first time that it was like very clear like oh there are there are people who do this like there there are people who make the things i love right yeah and for me as a kid i always knew that i wanted to be involved in televisual cinema whatever and when i was really young uh, the first thing I thought I wanted to be was I wanted to be an actor. And if you think about it, it makes sense because they're the most visible component from just watching a movie. It's like, oh, it's like, I want to do that. I want to be a part of that, right? And then you Same. learn, oh, yeah, right? And then you learn, oh, no, it's actually the director who's really the one who does this, who creates all this. And then I was like, okay, so, so I guess the director is really what I want to be, especially when you read things like skywalking and you go through the star wars behind the scenes material which is really kind of a hagiography hey, of george lucas like really playing into the auteur theory of it all right so you think oh he's the guy who did this so like i want to be like that guy and then you dial even deeper into it and then you realize oh no like there are all these specialized departments and certain things like there's a separate writer there's a separate you know, model maker, there's a separate this and a separate that. And then once you get into it, you can specialize and like the whole, the whole world opens up. So basically what I'm saying is at least for me, the behind the scenes Star Wars material was like a gateway drug into the mess that I've chosen for my uh, career that I'm in right now. <laughs> it, it's interesting because for me, my way into filmmaking was through storyboarding because I was originally going to be a comic book artist. So I already kind of knew and had a focus on those kind of like 
I don't want to say low level because it's totally inappropriate, but uh, the less recognizable onset positions, creative positions yeah, yeah. that, that mm -hmm. are super important to getting any film done. Um, when, when I got started uh, behind the camera, uh, I, had already, I had already started going to college and would trade storyboards with like music video directors and UCLA film students and whatnot in exchange for like, you know, make me your AD for a day. You're going to train me. You're going to have a totally useless, inexperienced AD who's going to try really hard, but you're going to get free storyboards in exchange, right? And it, it allowed me to pick up a lot of different onset skills and a lot of different uh, onset specializations, which honestly, later on as a producer, really came in handy because I knew what everybody's job was mm. and, and could put myself in their shoes as I was working with them. No, for so, sure. You bring up a really good point, like watching all of that material and sort of absorbing it all. And I don't just mean like the TV specials, but the books as well. The art of Star Wars and the art of The Empire Strikes Back, Art of Return of the Jedi, yeah. they would show the storyboards, right? I, I worshipped Joe Johnson when oh, yeah. I was no, little. He, like, no, yeah, he's, the, yeah, the, he's incredible. The, like, McQuarrie was great. Like, McQuarrie, no one's going to complain about Ralph McQuarrie, but the blueprint books that they published that you could see just the design schematics and Joe Johnson's technical drawings of the X-Wings and the Millennium Falcon and the TIE Fighters, like those loved those so much. It's crazy when you look at the designs he was responsible for originating, like they're so iconic, every single one, like even the unused stuff, it's just so like, holy shit. But yeah, like all that stuff that you, you started to figure out how a film crew worked and how a film was made through watching and reading all of this behind the scenes material. And you're like, oh, okay. Like there's a, a, there's a concept artist. Like there's a guy whose job it is to draw all this stuff. And then there's a guy whose job it is to make this into physical reality, like the art director or the production designer. I'm such a Joe Johnson fanboy. You're so much smarter than I, because when I watch those things, I, I didn't, I didn't like, I didn't like point out like, oh yeah, these, this is what's happening. These are the mechanics. These are the people. No, no. I was just like, this looks like fun. Like, you know, like, no, dude, like, that's no, fun. I'm, that's that... where all the fun happens. That, you can create shit. You can no, jump in front. You can let, that... act like an asshole. This is fantastic. No, that's the same thing. I'm not saying as like an eight-year-old, I was like, oh, he must be, he's obviously the production designer. I want to do his job. Obviously, he's only responsible for, th uh, for this, and that guy's responsible <laughs> for that. I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm saying like that was your first sense that like, there were people with different jobs and then the more you read these names would crop up again and then eventually without knowing it you were learning over time through absorbing all of this material you were sort of learning how a film crew was comprised so that you yeah. know later on when you would be in a professional situation or like an academic situation where you're learning you're like oh yeah that was joe johnston on on star wars that's what you're talking about i get it i get it while we're here can we talk about um Obviously, I'm a George Lucas fanboy, and I don't think that pre that needs to be, you know, said up front. But uh, there are things that he's good at, and there are things that, in my opinion, he's not as good at. I don't think, you know, and this is kind of controversial, but I don't think George Lucas is a particularly talented or exceptional director or writer. I think he's an amazing visionary in terms of conceptualism. I think one of his 
biggest strengths, and this is something that has impacted the filmmaking industry to this day, is he's really good at discovering talent when it comes to his crews. There's no one that worked on the original Star Wars that isn't a legend still working in Hollywood today if they're still around and, and able to work. But also developing processes for things that no one had ever done before. I mean, sure, you've got THX and, and ILM and all of these like very encoded processes that became institutions unto themselves. But you mentioned concept artists, and that made me think of Doug Chang. And mm. Doug Chang on the prequels was really more than a concept artist because he had this kind of like production management role over all the various departments to kind of say, okay, well, this is what with the drawing went. Let's get it to the Mac app. Let's get it to the full size thing, you know, and it's like to what, or to into the computer rendered in 3d. Um, and that wasn't the way that it was normally done. Like the guy who sits in the back office, the beginning of pre-production drawing all these things doesn't usually have any interaction with like have any interaction with yeah. the rest of it. And, but yeah. it makes sense to take that guy and put him in charge of everything else to make sure the end result is, you know, you get rid of that whole game of telephone that happens yeah. as it moves from one department to the other by putting the original guy in charge of it all. And that's something that George is really good at is thinking, how can we do this better? No, 100%. Just to stick with the prequels for a second, say what you will about the films themselves, but the fact that... Oh, I will. <laughs> the pipeline that they developed, like deciding to shoot with digital cameras, knowing that everything was going to have to be digitized anyway, not just the special effects, but also the editing on the Avid. Like people forget that not only was Pixar originally a George Lucas company, but the edit droid, the first nonlinear editing software was sold to a company called Avid. And so he also created nonlinear editing, which is today just called editing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and then again, setting the creative success of the prequels aside, like he pulled the entire industry where he wanted it to be. And now that's yeah. how, I mean, that's just how, how movies are made. It's the status quo. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I would just like to push back. It's like, yes, by today's standards, I agree. Like we could say George Lucas is probably not the best director out there, but like when you, when you turn that dial back and see what he had to build off of, I feel like what he did, I mean, it wasn't like leaning into the flow of attention like Spielberg can get to like where he, he just understands how to follow uh, and portray a thought. Like, and just like keep the attention on a thought or an idea and switch uh, fluidly with, with little frequent, uh, uh, with a little friction. George Lucas was like, I've got this idea and I want to get it on a screen. And the way to do that just doesn't exist yet. And so I'm going to create everything to make that happen. And I think that that deserves note, like just oh, as I much as like, any other direct what uh, anything else a, a, a director and and um, for sure. me that's his legacy that's what he does is he creates things that don't exist so that he can make the movie he wants to make um and yeah you can say that's part of directing although most directors who don't you know own their own major studios don't necessarily have that kind of leeway 
but he's definitely good at that. Two thoughts, Bracey, what you just said, the way you were describing how Spielberg works and how he follows through on an idea and is able to guide you through it and divert your attention, like very subtly and in a really kind of an effortless way, he's manipulating you to get you to see and think exactly what he wants you to think. George Lucas, he famously, he was an avant-garde experimental filmmaker who was an editor first and foremost. And what he does is he puts things together that shouldn't necessarily be together or you wouldn't think to put together. And the results of that are not always as smooth as maybe <laughs> how Spielberg would handle something. I'm just thinking like he kind of assaults your senses and throws a lot of information at you. And not to get too in the weeds on this, but the magic of editing is that your mind creates meaning through the juxtaposition of these separate images. And your mind sort of sees the through line. And the editor's job is to know what will have what effect when and will guide you. And one, so I would say George Lucas, I think his process is to, to put things up against each other and see what comes out, right? Yeah. And that can be a less palatable kind of experience. The way that I put it on the other pod, Jeff, I think George Lucas is simply more interested in certain aspects of filmmaking and completely unconcerned with other aspects of yeah. filmmaking. I would say mechanics. I, I, I totally agree on that. I think that's why his most enduring best work has always been when there are people that he respects enough to, to, to handle the stuff he doesn't care about. Yeah, to handle the stuff he doesn't care about, but also to do it in a way where they can push back against him, which I think got got less and less over the years as George Lucas became George Lucas. There are yeah. fewer people I, in a position to to say, George, that's a bad idea. I agree with that. I, I see I think he's he's interested in the mechanics where somebody like Spielberg is interested in the craft. Like they're both interested mm -hmm. in the the craft to some extent, but like uh, uh, Spielberg will lean into the craft of like a director and what he can direct and do. Whereas <laughs> George Lucas is like, all right, hey, uh, uh, I want to, I want to be able to do this thing, and and I can't do it. Let's let's figure out how to put this together. So this is an interesting segue, actually, into the behind the scenes material from the prequels. I remember when the episode one DVD came out, the main special feature was this documentary called The Beginning that was not a traditional documentary with, you know, a narrator and talking head interviews. It was like a fly on the wall documentary where obviously when they embarked on this project of making the first Star Wars movie in over a decade, they documented the whole process and they showed the whole process warts and all, like even to the point where the famous uh, Plinkett prequel reviews, the Red Letter Media Guys, a lot of the stuff that he uses as weapons against Lucas to make his points come from that very documentary. Like the th moment when they watch the first rough cut in its entirety and George Lucas says, I may have gone too far in a few places. And the moment where he says, you know, it's like, it, he says, it's like poetry, it rhymes. They use all these moments from this documentary as sort of exhibit A, B, C, and D that like they were doing a bad job or something. When in actuality, I think that's a really brave, insightful 
cool documentary to be available because it, it does walk you through the whole process and shows you those moments when even George Lucas himself, like he's watching this rough cut and he's like, I think I may have gone a little too far. And then they talk about how to mitigate the jerking aroundness of it. I think they're talking about the end sequence in The Phantom Menace when you're intercutting between four separate action sequences. Because that was a good idea. If you think about it, though, it's really an extension from Return of the Jedi, where it was three and Empire Strikes Back, it was two. And then The Phantom Menace is four. And George Lucas even says in From Star Wars to Jedi from 1983, he says he's always trying to see how much information, how fast he can move until it becomes incomprehensible, right? And seeing that moment in the beginning, he was realizing, I, I think I may have found <laughs> that line. <laughs> I found the limit. Yeah. 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 Or at least the pacing, like, like, or it, it, at least it exceeded his ability to actually weave them together. Like he couldn't weave these four things together at the pace and the way that he was doing it. Right. To go back to the Plinkett review, he plays a clip where he's talking to Rick McCallum and Ben Burt right after the screening. And he's like, you can't really remove any one of those components because it's designed to be that way, but you can mitigate the effects of it. And Plinkett says something like, what the fuck does that mean? That is complete horseshit. And I'm like, no, dude, like that actually makes complete sense. You constructed it. You can't remove any one of those components because that's what you've set up and that's the building you've designed. So it'd be like having a building with only three walls instead of four, but you can make it so it's a little less jarring. And that's what he's talking about. And I think that's a really valuable, fascinating window into, I mean, not just George Lucas's process, but the filmmaking creative process in general. And I think it's really cool. Like they didn't have to show that on the official DVD and they did. And I think that's really cool. I, I will say there are more behind the scenes documentaries that are done in that style, where it's a, a montage piecemeal of, of fly on the wall footage of the production. Um, again, it's another thing that kind of became the standard because getting ready for this, uh, I watched the beginning first and then I watched um, the director and the Jedi. Uh, and then I went back to from Star Wars to Jedi to refresh my memory on that uh, last. And having the behind the scenes documentary, I'd forgotten how much of that documentary was Mark Hamill narrating to carry it from bit to bit, you know, with, with some better dialogue and some better lines to say and some bad ones. Uh, and just how much of that documentary is just like, 60, 90, you know, 120 seconds of actual scenes from the film. Yeah. You know, at a go. <laughs> uh, before they get into anything that's actually behind the scenes. I mean, I didn't actually count it out, but it feel it felt like half of from Star Wars to Jedi is made up of scenes uh, <laughs> either from Star Wars Empire or Jedi as opposed to actual BTS footage. Oh, well, no, you're right. I think that has to do with the technology available. I mean, back when they were shooting a behind the scenes material in like the late 70s and the early 80s, like you were shooting on 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 16 mil 
and you were making noise and it was heavy and you needed a separate sound guy. And then you get to the mid nineties, you have a guy with a high eight camcorder who can just kind of keep to himself and just shoot a whole bunch of tape. And it's, I mean, tape is cheap or was cheap compared to films. And I think that there was also an awareness by the nineties that somebody will want to see all of this someday. <laughs> but the idea that you would have footage of every part of the process was like, who the fuck's going to watch that? Like, who cares? Right. Actually, that reminds me. Uh, let's see if I can jog a memory of yours, uh, taking you all the way back to the early 90s, late 80s Discovery Channel. Uh, did either movie of you... magic, movie magic? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you had to ask. It's Josh. Yeah, no, so did I. And actually, I don't know if that was my gateway drug into you may uh, be right uh, from Star Wars to Jedi or or vice versa. But in my mind, the two are interconnected as this love of watching the behind the scenes. And no, you're nobody totally right. watched that show. <laughs> they did do an episode, like, like I think the format of it was they would be documenting some contemporary movie. And then whatever they were doing, they would like go through the history of how other movies throughout the 20th century, what the techniques had been that led to whatever this new movie was doing now. Yeah. Um, they went back to Star Wars a whole lot of times. I know that there was one um, where they were talking about compositing separate elements of yeah, film. Yeah, matte painting, compositing, matte painting. layering, yeah. all the different... Did I yeah. know you guys read Cinefix in the 80s and 90s? Uh, yeah. I read it in the 90s, yeah. 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 That and tangentially related, I had a Fangoria subscription really early on. I was also big into Starlog, which had a lot of really yep. great in-depth articles about uh, the making of lots of movies. I mean, not just Star Wars, but their yeah, Star yeah. Wars coverage was obviously fantastic. Cinema Fantastique. Those behind the scenes magazines were at least as influential on me as the documentary stuff was. Maybe more so because I could actually just stare at that page as long as I wanted to until I had absorbed everything that was happening and whatever BTS photograph was, was in front of me. For me, that was exactly the opposite. Like I would read that stuff. I would like get halfway through a page and I just stop reading. Because, like, it didn't inspire me the way that watching the behind-the-scenes did of anything, whether that was movie magic or, or from Star Wars to Jedi or any other thing. Because what I would tend to do is take what little bit of information I got and then try to recreate it using whatever I had, which, that's like, so, led to me. Yeah, that's, it's so that, brazy. I know. That's so brazy. That's so you, man. Like, that's, that's so... You see a little bit and you're like, oh, shit, wait, I think I can do that. So, yeah. um, so while we're on differences, I did the same thing. <laughs> I just saved a lot of time and money and effort by only recreating it all in my head. Ah. Like in a very detailed, processed way, like every single aspect of it. And by the time I was done figuring out how to do it, I didn't actually have to do it because I already knew. <laughs> I, went, I went all the way. I remember specifically watching like green screen stuff and thinking, well, the most important thing is that I have a backdrop uh, uh, that is a single color. I didn't have any like editing tools or affecting tools or anything. Uh, so <laughs> I just did, did a I. whole black backdrop. And I remember using Animal, like uh, the puppet, like the yeah. Muppet, um, yeah, and like trying to... Compositing fur is easy. To, to it's a great thing to start on. Yeah, yeah no, I had, I had a, a no clue. And then, oh, but I, at least I got like a sense of it, which ultimately I feel like actually did come into play later on in, in my career uh, while we were doing other projects, but like, I just had to get a sense of it. Like, and, and that's, that's why it just, it 
for me personally, the behind the scenes footage always meant more to me or like that narrative, seeing it play out as a film always meant more to me than the magazine. Did either of you guys ever do VHS tape to tape editing? I did. And I was actually just about to say <laughs> that I actually think we got fucked over a little bit. Oh, wait, uh, I because... can curse? Great. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because I was always so frustrated with how hard it was to to edit the video that I was shooting. And now, uh, just hearing you talk, had we come of age in the time of, like, Super 8 film, it was physical. So we wouldn't have had to do those daisy chain of, of like, of, of, v of VCRs to get, like, a very shitty rudimentary edit. We would have been able to just literally splice the film and do it. I remember in the very late 90s, I was trying to get my hands on a copy of Adobe Premiere because that's what all the the magazines said, like, that's how you edit video now. That was like my holy grail. Like I was trying to find someone to get me a copy. Like I asked, I asked my parents and they looked at the price tag and I don't know what it retailed for in 1997, but it was at least a grand. It was like, yeah, I think it was like yeah. 1500 bucks. And my parents were like, uh, <laughs> no chance. At all. <laughs> no, I mean, no, <laughs> no, I did all my editing in camera. I would always yeah. be doing everything yeah. in camera oh. because I was like, I'm never going to be able to edit this thing. So I got to do all the shots. I would too. So yeah. I would too, but that would limit what I was trying to replicate was what they were doing in the behind the scenes stuff. And I was like, but to do that, I need to, I can't, it's like, I can't, it's like, I need to, I need to edit, I need to edit this. But, but here's, here's the yeah. thing that blows my mind because look, insert editing tape to tape is terrible and camera editing, terrible experience, nothing good or whatever. Right. But you brought up compositing Bracey. And film to film compositing, where you're actually trying to get an element into a physical frame of film in just <laughs> the right spot over multiple, oh, like yeah. that blows my mind that this was all done like that, except for yeah. Blade Runner, which was in camera and even crazier, that you would have to physically transfer the TIE fighter from one piece of film onto another piece of film that had the Millennium Falcon and the Starfield already on it. And then throw in 80,000 asteroids or whatever. Like that's, I, I would but not that, want to work that way. I can't believe anyone ever did. I mean, but that's because we have the appetite for the speed at which we can do stuff now. Whereas when they came at this, it didn't exist. And I think, I think if you look at it through that lens, like if, to, at least for me, it's just fascinating. Like, realizing like hey if we do this really obscure process of of shooting or like laying down what we would look like what would look like a star field and then process that film and then project that film and then do like you know uh, 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 do different different processes where we could separate the backdrop from another layer and then layer up these two pieces of film and then shoot that as it's like i just i just love the brains that were behind that thinking through this process of like, how can we make this happen? Cause this does, it just doesn't happen if we don't make it ourselves. I love that. I mean, I, I kind of long for that. Uh, for the yeah, actual in, physical, the, the actual physical medium. No, uh, uh the actual limitation. Like I, I feel like I long gotcha. for that limitation. Um, because, uh, something about the mechanic as well as the craft is what's interesting to me. It's like the craft of directing is great, but I feel like I found, I, I, I found some heart 
in George Lucas's like longing to just craft this thing or find a way it in an unbeaten path. My my thing was like as much as I'm amazed by the physical process of working with film and getting what I just talked about done, for me that physical medium part was always the least interesting and because I never shot anything on Super 8, right? I sh I went from tape to digital uh and never never I've never shot on film of all the things that that I've shot. Um Travesty. The, the the fascinating part for me was always the tricks. The and what I mean by that is how you make something look great in a frame on set, even if it really doesn't, if you're looking at it from any other angle. <laughs> and and like a, an example of this, I, I don't it. know if you guys have your own favorite like original tri trilogy making of trivia bits, but the rebel hanger on Yavin, right? There's like one real X-Wing, I think there's a real Y-Wing, and everything else is just painted plywood in the background, but you can't tell because as far as the camera's concerned, it looks like a hangar full of ships. Even though if you took one little step to the side, it would all fall apart because the way that they did it was honestly no different than how people did stage plays with flat 2D background elements. And Josh made that, me appreciate that. The, the tricking like the very... camera like that was always the part that that fascinated. It's, it's how do you? One of my favorite it... shots is from Return of the Jedi. The model of the shield generator that explodes. The whole thing was in camera. Dennis Murin had this idea that if you create like layers of model, you would create the illusion of like the haziness in the distance. So you had, you know, like the trees in the foreground. And then on the next layer, you would have trees that were like slightly lighter and smaller. And then you would have like, like da, 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 da. So, so it would create that same thing that happens when you're looking far off into the distance. And that whole shot was in camera. And it was just one of those things where he was like, I think I have an idea. I think, I think I might be able to pull this off in camera and we won't have to do any compositing. And they were like, yeah, sure, Dennis. And, and he did it and it's, <laughs> and it's history. Yeah. And it's he's great. He's great to uh, talk to, by the way, he's a little, have you a little shy and awkward because I don't think he was expecting anyone to talk to him, but I went to an event and like, you know, uh, Peter was there and Anthony was there and even George was there, although I didn't get to talk to him. Uh, but you know, Dennis was also there and most of the people that were there were not particularly interested in Dennis Murray and they were interested in Anthony Daniels or the other cast members. Uh, but I was like really fascinated <laughs> to talk to him. And I must've, I must've talked his ear off for like 20 minutes and he's very gracious and, and very nice. And um, on the one hand, I he's think he, he, he appreciated having a conversation who was with, with a fan who was obviously legitimately interested in his work. Um, but at the same time, you could tell he wasn't expecting. Not used so to like, it. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't used to it. Yeah, he's always, he always struck me as kind of the mad scientist. Uh, he reminds me of like Doc Brown. Hearing you talk about how George Lucas really was creating these processes, like figuring out how to build what he needed to do what exactly what he wants. Because if you move from the the beginning documentary 
uh, making of episode one, the equivalent on episode two is called From Puppets to Pixels. And like the arc of that was how they did the digital Yoda and how you get from where they were with digital effects and digital characters to being able to create Yoda as a CG creation. And it's a fascinating documentary. Like, it's really interesting to watch the process, but I can't help but, like, it's a lot of guys hunched over computer monitors. It doesn't have that same, like, like... Pizzazz. Yeah, I mean, like you were saying. Well, even beyond that, I mean, sure, you could say it's less entertaining to to watch that kind of behind-the-scenes process, but that whole thing is like an Ian Malcolm moment for me, right? Like, that's the epitome (laughs) of when filmmaking hit the Jurassic Park moment of not asking whether they should, um, you know, Attack of the Clones is by far my least favorite Star Wars film to begin with. Um, but I think part of, and, and you had mentioned earlier, it, it, both of you actually about the willingness to explore and the willingness to, to push boundaries and try new things and figure out how far is too far. Um, you know, I think that movie is a really good example of uh, where you really saw in the theater for the first time an example of when the newfangled CG could be too much, at least for me. Yeah, I mean, I'm sympathetic to what you're saying, but, you know, again, I know kids who grew up with the prequels who, for them, the prequels are their Star Wars, and the way that I'm sure that they would compare a CG shot from Attack of the Clones to something that is in a contemporary movie and like acknowledge like, okay, this one is better than that one. But um, I mean, it's hard to say, like, because it's like a taste thing and it's an aesthetic thing. I have what I like, but I'm always very hesitant to be like, well, that is objective. You know what I mean? But see, I I don't think that was necessarily what I was talking about, because I mean, you're right uh there's stuff that holds up and stuff that doesn't and that's going to be the case with any developing technology i think with attack of the clones you had the peak moment in the prequels that started in in phantom metas uh where creative decisions were made purely because technology made them possible and not in service to the story right that's that that to me i think there's stuff that's in those movies that's only there because they could and not because it made the movie better, right? Regardless of how well or poorly the actual effects themselves sure. were pulled off and how, how well they stand up. Yeah, I mean, something that always stands out to me that actually uh, kind of baffled me at the time, they were talking about how they didn't construct a physical suit of armor for the clone troopers. All the clone troopers were 100% CG and they were boasting about that as if it like was an accomplishment. And in some regards, like, yes, it is an accomplishment, but at the same time, it's kind of like, well, what, why? Like, what, yeah. like, why did you do it that way? Would you have a conveyor belt scene on Geonosis without that stuff? Or would someone have actually said, you know what, maybe that's not a great idea. It's not worth Like if you had to build that, if you had to build that sequence out practically with, with C-3PO and the, the whole conveyor belt thing or whatever, you know, yeah, I mean, you, you wouldn't, wouldn't have done it. Yeah. The limitations would have forced you to do it differently and probably in better service to the story. Well, so this is something very interesting because I just had a conversation recently about Return of the Jedi. And one of the things we were talking about was that in the the earlier drafts uh, before they settled on the second Death Star, 
in the various iterations, one of the the concepts was the final battle was going to happen over the Imperial capital, which was a city planet that uh, would eventually be named Coruscant, but had another name in that conceptual stage. And the reason they didn't do the city planet was because George Lucas didn't think that they could pull it off effectively with models and with the amount of sets that they would have to construct. He didn't think that they could do it. And he's gone on record, you know, saying this many, many times. And I was always like, I really understand what you're talking about. But he said that he had to wait until the technology was at a level to realize what he had in mind for the prequels. And that's the only example that I know of specifically. Because if you think about it, in the next movie, they have a city planet, right? They do realize that world in the very next movie. It is interesting because I guess I, for one, would have loved to have seen what 1983 technology, how that would have created that sort of an environment. Just as someone who, who appreciates, you know, model work, and obviously Blade Runner did it pretty good. I wonder how much of those limitations were in his own mind, if you will. <laughs> No, it's a good question. And, and the, the counterpoint that I'd say is he said the same thing about Jabba. Sure. And, yeah. you know, managed to pull it off when he had to. Yeah, well, I mean, that's sort of... The... <laughs> no, I'm, I'm talking no, about well... Return of the Jedi Jabba. I'm talking about real Jabba, not... Oh, not... oh okay, okay, okay. I, yeah, I'm yeah. talking about the fact... Yeah. I'm talking about the scene that he shot for Star Wars that he ended up cutting... Right. Because he couldn't make Jabba work in the hangar scene. Well, that, well, so it is interesting too, because there's that very famous, uh, it's like a meme or whatever that I see pop up on the internet every once in a while, where it's like a picture of George Lucas that was the cover for one of the versions of From Star Wars to Jedi, where it's him surrounded by all of the models and the puppets, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> right next to him on set of episode three, where it's just him. And he's surrounded by green screen and he's like, they're like, you know, holding his <laughs> Starbucks. Right. Yeah. And what I think that illustrates is, and I think this is a real thing, but you know, there's a reason he didn't want to direct a movie again for, for 20 years. I mean, there's a reason why he didn't want to direct Empire Strikes Back, didn't want to direct Return of the Jedi because the process of trying to realize like 30% of what was in his head on screen literally almost killed him did destroy his marriage so the idea that he's like i don't want to make another movie like this until it gets easier but to swing it back around to where we started i think the fact that that we got curse directing empire is the reason it's the best movie of the entire series yes you know i think that, i think that comes Rick down to irvin yeah. the character stuff that is so critical to that movie is in that um, that kind of realm of stuff George doesn't care about, and Kirsch is yeah amazing at it, you know. Uh, so it just so happens that uh, in my life, um, when Episode One, Episode Two was coming out, that happened to be a period in my life where I had I didn't realize that I was going to be doing film. Like I had no uh, 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 no direction in my life that was going to lead me in that. I was like finishing up high school. And uh, I had gone into uh, a community college and it was only through a community college that I realized taking a film class that I was like, oh, I love this. Like, I want to do this. And I got introduced to editing like on Super 8 and stuff like that. And then uh, chose my, uh, my college, the university because of that and ended up uh, going to Binghamton where I met, uh, I met Josh, uh, but then also really fell in love uh, shooting on a Bolex, getting... I, I fell in love with uh, uh, shooting 
16 millimeter film. And it was at that time that I got introduced to the behind the scenes kind of uh, docu-series that was leading up to the release of Revenge of the Sith. John wanted me to mention, he specifically remembered you, me, and him, we we would gather around the computer, right? And we would watch the new- At BTV. Yeah. <laughs> at, and we would watch the new one of those little featurettes every time a new one dropped. Yeah, yeah. And that became, that uh, is what pulled me back. That whole thing kind of pulled me back to the stuff that I loved and uh, uh, the behind the scenes feeling where where I had like for about a decade, I feel like just completely went in a completely different direction and then found my way back to filmmaking. And then through you guys in the basement of our college TV station um, or our college TV station that was in the basement, rediscovering like, man, this is, this is better than, this is better than the past two movies. Like, you know, I just remember getting so hyped watching the behind the scenes and thinking, oh man, they did this all right. This, this looks so fantastic. So, but that's also interesting because of the way then at that point they were really using through the internet and through the new technology that was available. They were using now the behind the scenes, knowing that there were people like you and people like me and people like Jeff that were out there. Yeah. Um, knowing that there was a way to utilize the behind the scenes to, to build up that, that anticipation using it as a marketing tool. Yeah. And it worked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to go someplace dangerous, but. I, I too remember that whole time and that whole process, even though I didn't know you guys then I didn't get to share it with you. Uh, and I went through that too. I remember it very well, actually. Um, and I would just like to point out that even though Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones had taken its fair share of flack from the Star Wars fan community who were, were kind of disappointed in, in the movies not being what they were hoping for, I don't remember a single second, even though everybody knew his name, I don't remember a single second of Rick McCollum getting the kind of, the kind of crap that Kathy Kennedy gets on like a daily basis from the fan well, community. That... There was no one going, oh, Rick McCollum is such a, you know, is killing Star Wars, blah, blah, blah. Same job, well, same position. There's a, yes. There's, there's multiple there's, reasons there's, for that. There's one yes. obvious <laughs> difference between them. I'm not gonna, you know. Yeah, no. I would say broadly speaking, you're right. And, and I do hear what you're getting at. I think a lot of it is, you know, is very genuine sexism and just like a basic lack of understanding of how films are made. And I also think it's a lack of, you know, there's this weird thing that has happened where like fans are sort of wagging the dog now, right? Like they feel like they are entitled to certain things and should be catered to when, I mean, in my opinion, like that is the enemy of uh, well, creativity. That's how you get crap and... like Rise of Skywalker, right? Which is the original Snyder cut, really. And, <laughs> and to me, uh, did nothing to make it a better movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to say your words, not mine. I don't want to cast aspersions. <laughs> sure, I will. Go ahead. I'll, I'll, take, yeah. I'll do all the dispersing for everyone. <laughs> But there, there is, um, I think, a big difference between the sequel trilogy and the Disney output and everything that had come previously for the first time. And I know that this is going to sound strange, but their reason for being is a purely commercial one. And that is not to say, I've obviously... never understood that argument. I've never understood that argument because, like, there was Star Wars everything when I grew up. Yes. You know? No, no. 
in the 70s and 80s, there was Star Wars everything. There was there's ceramic Star Wars C-3PO tape dispensers, like for scotch tape. Here's the distinction. I'm absolutely not arguing that it was not about making money until Disney. It it 100% absolutely was a commercial enterprise and trying to make as much money as, as possible. I'm not disputing that. All I'm saying is that those movies existed. There was a there was a story that one artist, for better or worse, wanted to tell, and that was the reason why these movies existed. And now it's a foregone conclusion. There is going to be more, and now they just have to find someone to fill the slot. Like these movies are going to happen, whether you like it or not, right? Like they will find someone to make them. I'm not sure I buy that either, because yes, I mean, he can't underscore the importance of George Lucas, but it was never just him. To to say that it was that the first six movies are, I think the prequel trilogy does more fall into the idea of a, a a single voice, and I think you know you can tie no, how I mean, you feel about what I mean by those that... movies to that voice or not, whatever. But I mean, you 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 can't take away from. I mean, we talked about Irvin Kershner. We haven't done, like Lawrence Kasdan. Like you can't take away from his part in making the original nope. trilogy what it no, was. No, and I don't. No, and, and I don't. Back for the sequel trilogy to do that. No, but you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. Like those movies wouldn't have been made if George Lucas didn't want to make them, right? Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and that's that singular voice. There's like a a dictator to the Star Wars production machine running that thing, and he cut it off for a long time. I know. And I'm still a little bitter about that. <laughs> well, so, but that, that 16 year gap, like everyone was telling him, like, just make another Star Wars movie. Like, just make another Star Wars. Like you're sitting on like a go, like he, he, he didn't have it in him. He didn't want to do it. He, he was burnt out. He was uninterested. And it wasn't until he got re-inspired for better or worse that he was like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to do this. And this is not me shitting on the Disney movies and the Disney output. I love a lot of it unabashedly. I think that a lot of it is really great, but there is a distinction where, you know, now we live, we live in a world where there will never be a last Star Wars. There's going to be new Star Wars for my entire life that will continue until after I'm dead. Right. And, you know, there was something about the, um, the preciousness. Yeah. Like the scarcity of it that, that is gone now. Now, look, like that doesn't I'm not saying that they shouldn't make any more Star Wars, but like this is just sort of the reality of the world that we live in. We live in a capitalist society and like the culture industry will will need to make as much money as possible. And so you get a franchise and uh, an IP like Star Wars and with the incentives being what they are, you'd be crazy not to make as much Star Wars as you could as long as it makes more money. But but and it's more possible. things that are hanging on it now, too, like like Disney having whole parks and rides and now hotels that are like dependent on like new people coming into the star wars fold and this promise that there will be new things for them to discover like it 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 requires it's a machine it, it's a machine that requires new stuff to keep running or else they'll lose they, they, they'll lose on liability let me take that point from a different angle. And I do agree that you can absolutely oversaturate and inundate in any property. And I think, you know, one thing that, that we see from Disney with both Marvel and Star Wars is kind of trying to figure out where that line is. Um, that said, 
for me, one of the things that makes Star Wars probably the most influential property of my life uh, is its presence as a story world and Mm. absolute fullness to the brim of all of these stories that went untold and could be told. And it's part of why I, you know, when in the nineties, it was books and comics. I devoured all of that, you know, whether it had anything to do with the main characters or not, whether it had anything to do with the, the, the original trilogy timeline or not. There have always been the, the world is so vast and so dense that to me, Disney acquiring Lucasfilm was one of the best things that possibly could have happened to it because I, we have I seen agree with you. gritty war movies like Rogue One that would have never gotten made, you know, ever, ever. And we have seen the Mandalorian and I, I agree you with know, you. We're, we're, we're finally able to explore different genres of storytelling to explore different nooks and crannies of the universe in different ways to be able to accomplish things that previously you could only do with something like the decipher card game or the West end games role-playing game. Uh, I agree with you. I love that. You know, is it ever, is it going to work every single time? Probably not, but that's not the point for me. I would rather see less dependence on core story elements. Like, it's great that Boba Fett came back and we got something, you know, I'm not knocking that show at all, but I don't need a show about Boba Fett, right? I want a show about either unexplored characters or new characters or show me new things, you know, um, give me something like Rogue One, give me something like Mandalorian, give me things that flesh out the lore beyond. And I think they're, they are kind of falling into that trap of, uh, you know, now Luke's back. Now I, I do like how they're tying everything together a bit in Book of Boba Fett, but uh, yeah, but there's a lot of I stuff don't... in the offing. I think is going to be doing exactly what you're talking about. I mean, like the High Republic stuff. I think is setting the stage for like a new TV series, and eventually, I think films. I think they are doing exactly what you're talking about. I don't I need think... a bunch of. I, I I appreciate it, but I don't need a bunch of. Hey, remember the Emperor? Here's the Emperor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. I'm with you, Jeff. And, and I think, you know, having Rey's backstory in Last Jedi, that to me was way more Star Wars than having her be the Emperor's granddaughter, right? So that actually brings me to, I do want to talk a little bit about the director and the Jedi, or the documentary yeah. about the making of uh, The Last Jedi, which for reasons that I sadly do understand, but 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 still kind of shock and sadden me is like the most divisive thing to happen to Star Wars since uh, the special editions or no, I guess. It's just the most divisive thing to happen to Star Wars. I think that's, you could just full stop yeah, on that. Yeah, no, Bracey, <laughs> Bracey, where's where's Last Jedi on your list? You um, put the movies not, in order, where is it? Um, it's, it's probably at the top. Um, I'm not entirely sure these days because I haven't like I have a, a completely different feeling watching this stuff again now. But coming from a creative filmmaker, storyteller, like I I think The Last Jedi is probably the best best Star Wars movie out there. And I would I mean, I uh, uh, for me, like it, it doesn't stand without the things that came before it yeah, for yeah, its right. reasons for being. For sure. But as far as like what it's trying to do, I I think at this point in my life, I would put that above Empire. 
Like, I think it's damn good movie. I love it. It's in my top five. I think it's number three. It's like, I like it more than Return of the Jedi. I would rank it higher than Return of the Jedi. But yeah. like the original Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, like like at the end of the day, because of childhood, because of what those two movies represented, like, you know, what they did. Like, we're the we're the worst Star Wars podcast apparently ever because we're supposed to be shitting on Ryan Johnson and we're supposed to be. But I've got it at number two. I've got it. I've got it at number two. It's like for me, it's 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 Empire, then The Last Jedi, then Star Wars, then Rogue yeah, One, fair. then Return yeah. of the Jedi. It's very close. I would say for me, Star Wars and Empire switch and the two and three spot switch. It's like, you know, Schrodinger's uh, best star wars um but, but um empire and tlj are also very similar and i think ryan johnson's approach and kirsch's approach were very similar was, yes and, i agree and I, it's once a, i yes. figured out what ryan johnson was doing because we watched it together and we saw it twice the same night uh and yeah. the first time i was like what the hell did i just watch because it wasn't what i was expecting what i felt like was being set up by the uh um <clears throat> by the force awakens right the second time instead of trying to watch the movie that i expected them to make i watched the movie they actually made and i was so on board and so sold and it brought back so many of those empire strikes back kind of vibes where it's which is exactly i think and again i wasn't around i'm only reading what was said at the time but but i believe that was the reaction people had to the empire strikes back that's not what they were expecting as the sequel to star wars and I think, you know, there's a reason why, I mean, not that box office is like the end all be all, but Empire was, I think, still uh, the lowest box office of the three. I think it was less of a crowd pleaser. Yet you look all these years later and everyone's like, yeah, I mean, Empire is is obviously it's, the best. It's by far the one that's most likely to be named as someone's favorite movie. If you yeah. ask them what their favorite Star Wars movie is, Empire by far, including the, the prequel era. Yeah. yeah. And I think the last Jedi was doing something very similar and that it was really challenging the audience, really doing a lot of things on a lot of levels. And it was not giving you what you expected. And I, frankly, I was shocked that we got a movie that good. Yeah. Like, I was really through the gate somehow. Yeah. yeah. And again, in retrospect, it was silly of me to be surprised, but I was surprised how much some people hated it. Cause to me, what the last Jedi was doing was really like, Returning to first principles, like really getting into the guts, the themes and the ideas and the questions that were really the animating forces of those original films and the prequel films to really say something worth saying. Right. And ask the question about the characters. Like, where would it? First of all, keep in mind, Ryan Johnson did not put Luke Skywalker on a rock in the middle of nowhere, having run away from all, you know, making him a failed Jedi master. No, he did right? not do that. No, He inherited that. That wasn't his idea. So his job became, OK. Well, if Luke is out in this middle of nowhere because he gave up after failing Kylo Ren, why would what, he do that? How would yeah, how would how do we get now? there? How does it exactly yeah. right? And yeah. and and across the board, I think what what Ryan Johnson did was really kind of focus on like, okay, who are these characters? How have they gotten where they are? You know, what are they thinking based on what we know about them from the original trilogy? You know, yeah. Leia being a mentor to Poe Dameron is a perfectly spot on character observation for for what she would do and her seeing him as as you know a young han ish kind yeah, of thing no, totally. and i think i think luke is exactly they like people want i feel like the the people that push back want the luke that showed up at the end of mandalorian season two or whatever it was right where he just walks in with a lightsaber cuts everything in half 
and is just like this badass, right? And I do think, you know, there's probably a side to Luke's character that was that, especially before establishing that, you know, he got all of his students killed um, with, with Kylo Ren. Like, uh, you know, he got cocky, but he was also whiny and insecure. And I think the people yeah. that push back against TLJ Luke are deliberately forgetting the whole, like, you know, why are we still moving towards it, Luke? You know, the, but I was going into Tashi Station to pick up some power converters, Luke. Like, that was Luke, too. Luke rushing into to Cloud City was Luke, too. Exactly. They're also, they're also forgetting that he made mistakes and had his own weaknesses. And not to make this into a Last Jedi uh, Luke Skywalker episode, but, but um, you know, there was, there was just something about his depiction in that movie that really resonated with me personally. It really rang true. And I think that the people who reacted negatively, I think um, I can't really separate it out from the reactionary politics of the time that you know, we're living in. I think it was, I think on some level, it's, it's sort of, you are destroying this wholesome, like imagined past that we are yearning for because everything is so uncertain. And it's just kind of like, I mean, I don't know what to tell you, man. Like what happens in this movie is so much more satisfying and so much more interesting to me than just seeing, you know, Luke, like, blowing up Star Destroyers with the Force and and mowing down yeah, a zillion I, I gotta admit, I, I came into this with a little bit of a, my hackles up because they couldn't find a copy of The Director and the Jedi, so I had to scour the internet for clips. But a lot of the clips are buried in, like, Reddit threads yeah. with all of the old, like, you know, in-the-moment reactionaryism and how Kathleen Kennedy and Ryan Johnson are ruining Star Wars for everyone forever, blah, blah, yeah. blah. Um, you came primed. You came primed for battle. It was. Um, it, <laughs> it's so tough for me because to hear someone say, you know, that's not Luke. That's exactly Luke. Like that's that's. There's no. If you're Ryan Johnson and you get stuck with Luke in the middle of nowhere, that's the only Luke yeah. that can possibly exist. But tying it back to the uh, 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 to the behind the scenes documentary, I think what's telling and also kind of foreshadowed that this was going to happen is how. I love how open that they were about Mark Hamill being like, this yeah. isn't Luke from his perspective. And he's like, yeah, I just, you know, they just rent, rent the character to me, but, but like he disagreed with this take on Luke, which I think is fascinating, but also I feel like it paints what happened with what Johnson was saying with maybe a potentially a darker, uh, a, a darker tone uh, than uh, uh, than I had actually read uh, that documentary the first time that I saw it because I I forgot that I'd seen it I had like visited Josh in L A and uh, and I was like I, I think I, and I was like you have to watch this you gotta watch this and I think we I fell like, asleep and I was like yes. drunk drunkenly falling asleep oh, yeah. to this oh yeah sorry yeah <laughs> so, like, we got drunk and I was like Bracey Bracey we have to watch this we have to watch this sorry uh, but but uh, uh, Ryan at the table read or or at some production meeting being like I got all these Russian accounts are saying. Uh, uh, saying that Hux. like they don't don't kill Hux, right? Yeah. And while that might have at the time been kind of a throwaway thing, I think what it was actually showing was that there was this force that was going to take any negative opportunity and yeah. use it against them. And I feel like the thing that I also praise that they did, having Mark Hamill be openly upset about that, I feel like it was this opportunity to seize on that and build up 
this like echo chamber of negativity against this perspective that took it beyond even what the fan impact was and in some ways actually shaped the fan impact which i i mean I think that, it did, that's I, kind of my feeling more and more. I think a lot of those quotes get taken out of context, though, because I uh, I know at least in some of the stuff that gets brought back up, Mark is is specifically he was loves specifically referring to the fact that Luke dies. He didn't want Luke to die, right? Which I can understand. Like you wouldn't want your character and to that, get killed off. And throwing and throwing away the lightsaber. It sounded yeah, like. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there, there, there's different aspects of it depending on the different quote because Mark wasn't just blanket talking about the entire character arc and the entire right. film with every single line that gets brought up. Sometimes he's talking about something more specific, but it gets lumped in. I just read something um, yesterday. I'm actually currently reading Secrets of the Force, which is an unauthorized oral history of Star Wars by uh, Mark A. Altman and Edward Gross. Nice sighting. Good sighting job. Thank you. I appreciate that. But um, I just read, you know, Mark Hamill, while he wasn't necessarily thrilled or on board immediately with where Luke was going, he had nothing but admiration and respect for Ryan Johnson. He was like, you know, this is a real filmmaker who he's the real deal. And if he wants me to be in a movie like I will, like I'm there. Carrie, too. <laughs> Carrie fucking loved him. Yeah. 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 You know, and her opinion no. counts for something. Moving towards the end here, one thing I kind of lament is because of the Disney of it all. Like, I mean, there are certain things I don't think we're ever going to know from a behind the scenes standpoint. Like, I'm dying to know why Colin Trevorrow left. I'm dying to know why the directors of Solo were replaced. Like, not because of the gossip of it all. Like, I'm just so curious. I want to know what the process was and what the thinking was. I just want to know from a creative standpoint what was going mm. on and what, uh, you know, I, the different... I, I heard Star Wars uh, Ace it? Ventura, and I was like, yeah, I didn't, they, they, it's good they're gone. But I don't know, the, man. I mean, like, by that note, I think we dodged a, we dodged a bullet with uh, the, the sequel trilogy. Also from, you know, George's vision, where he wanted to go into, like, the midichlorian microverse and all of that. Like... No, but something he also wanted to get into, which I think is really interesting, was the prequel trilogy is about the fall of a democracy to fascism. The middle trilogy is the fight to overthrow an empire and rid the galaxy of tyranny. And the third trilogy would have been about the criminal elements that fill the power vacuum and the corporate elements that fill the power vacuum. Which again, only Ryan Johnson touched on. Yes, ex right, right. But something I just read, I think yesterday, was one of the things he wanted to use with the midichlorians was corporations were going to be trying to manipulate the midichlorians to make force yeah. sensitive people, like for yeah. profit. Yeah, that um, makes sense. Uh, which, little like, aliens, but yeah, it makes sense. Well, the Phantom Menace and like the destruction of yeah. the droids at the end by destroying the one ship is a little Independence Day. So, I mean, so yeah. I mean, like, you know, you get, yeah, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Talking about Mark Hamill and Ryan Johnson, one last, one last little tidbit I want to add. The other thing that I think is missing is the context of how Mark talks about Luke. And I have, a, right. I have a personal story to share to kind of help illustrate that. So I was at New York Comic Con and a friend of mine was doing PR for Hamill while he was there at the convention. So I got a chance to meet him kind of behind the scenes, whatever. Now I have a Wampa puppet that I had built um, that I have used in a few YouTube videos or whatever. It's a very expensive puppet built with real fur by a Henson Studio guy and I love it. Um, and I was very proud of it. So I brought it with me and I showed it to Mark. Um, and he went 
crazy over it and started yeah. just launching into stories. And the story that he told me, and it was, he just went on for like 20, 30 minutes, but the story that he told me had to do with the way that they shot that Wampa sequence in Empire Strikes Back. And the fact that when, for his part, they film him standing there, they film him swinging his lightsaber and running out of the cave. And only afterwards in editing with other, you know, second unit shots that get combined with it that Mark was not on set for, do you have like the arm getting cut off and whatnot? And, and Mark was very emphatic about how he felt like, you know, I wouldn't cut his arm off. It's not a very Jedi thing to do. You know, he's just like, he's like a bear. He's like a hungry animal, you know, I wouldn't hurt him. I just, you know, do whatever I needed to do to get away. Uh, but I wouldn't fault him. He's not evil, you know, and he's, it's just, it's part mm. of that, that passion and kind of overthinking that Mark has about this character and is, and being very vocal about it. Cause he'd been talking about the character for literally decades that he sees a puppet. He goes into a 20 minute rant about how, how Luke, Luke would, would never do that, would, would never do that <laughs> and cut the arm of a wampa. And he talks right. like that about the character. Of course he did it when they were, were talking about the last Jedi. Um, I, I really um, appreciate that context. That's fascinating to hear that perspective. Uh, what I also think is really a testament to Mark Hamill. I love the director and the Jedi for not shying away from this, for actually leaning into it. We see these discussions between Ryan Johnson and Mark Hamill on set when they were rehearsing at his house and like all that stuff. And I love that we got this little window into once again like with the beginning they're not shying away from the controversial aspects they're really explaining why this is the way that it is and what and where it's coming from which i really appreciated and i also appreciated that it wasn't a puff piece it wasn't a standard epk like it was like no like we're going to talk about this here's how the actor felt he disagreed here's what their process was i mean like we said i loved the movie but seeing that documentary i was also not expecting the same way that i wasn't expecting to get a star wars movie like the last jedi i also wasn't expecting to get another behind the scenes that was as frank about the making of it and uh they released like a three hour i think it's pushing three hours uh documentary about the whole culmination of the skywalker saga and about making rise of skywalker that's very cool because they have access to the Lucasfilm archives and there's a lot of like newly scanned film from the making of the original trilogy from all three movies and like it's really cool to see all these behind the scenes moments that you didn't know existed but it's disappointing because they don't get into the substance of like why why it was the way that it was and after having gotten that glimpse into the process that frankness from the director and the Jedi I really got more of a sense of like okay like i'm watching a corporate pr yeah like everything's happy and smiles and like hey isn't it cool how we shot this with this rig in the desert and like and look at all the masks we made and look at all the stuff and look at all the time we spent which is cool but i was a little bit like i want to see the process like i want to know i want to hear why you did what you did back in the day like just seeing the models and seeing the footage of the stop motion stuff and seeing them blowing up a model of an X-Wing, like that was all I needed to be like, what is this? I will watch this on loop for the rest of my life. And now it's like, I really need you to talk about 
the process. I really want to know everything. I want to know where your head was at. I want to know why you're making these decisions. I want to know why you're doing what you're doing. I think I think we get some of that. Have you seen the Parbo direct uh, the Parbo documentary, the the quote unquote Lost Empire one? Yes, uh, but I think I'm, we get some of that in that one. Yeah, no, no, we definitely do. And and some of the interplay between Kirsch and, and Lucas, and you know, not always just when they were getting along. And I think that's also uh, kind of part of the reason why it's a it's a lost documentary. <laughs> I'm specifically talking about the behind the scenes stuff of the Disney movies, the new movies. I don't know that we're ever going to get into that kind of nitty gritty. And if we do, it'll be years later when somebody writes a memoir. You know what I mean? It's so polished. It's so produced. The bat behind the but scenes. They released thing. The, it's like clearly they released the director and the now. Jedi. We were just talking yeah. about it, Disney produced no, but, it. No, but, no, but that was, I believe it was an independent production that got the permission to film the whole process. Because when they released that, it had a premiere at a film festival. Like, it wasn't something they released to coincide with the release of the movie. Here's something, here's something to think about, though. Behind-the-scenes material, making-of material, promotional material in general arguably has to be made either with a specific audience in mind or in different ways for different audiences, even it just as much as the main material that, you know, the films or the TV shows itself. Because one of the things that comes up in the, the conversation we're having is we all want different things out of our behind the scenes yeah. stuff. Yeah. Like we all expect different things from our BTS stuff and the the reason for releasing it which is almost 100% promotional and marketing related has its own goals you know so i think sure. there's there's going to be slick mainstream type making of stuff that will always exist and there's going to be you know the exposé style like what really happened on the set of type right. material that comes out of these things and and everything in between I want the Lord of the Rings version. I want like that in-depth, like just every part of the process, yeah. kind of do what Josh was talking about. Not just like, hey, look at the actors having fun, but I really want to dig into, this is the crafts people that are behind this part of the set and the props. But then you also have, here are the computer visionaries that are actually putting together these different programs that like simulate water or simulate crowds, simulate physics. And then here are these freaking crazy masterminds who are like doing previs stuff to put all this stuff together to show you how it will look or possibly work. And that like, now, now we're going inside VR and we're like showing all these things together and how we can put our camera. Like to me, that is more and more becoming more interesting to me than the actual product movie that comes yeah. out as, of, a, as, out as of a producer though do you think it's it's interesting to a broad enough audience to justify putting it out there or do you think it's just gonna always be kind of a niche absolutely as we move towards people get all right so obviously we're getting saturated with content at these days right like like everybody's fighting for everyone's attention i think we're getting to this point where a lot of people who receive their content are going to start asking for more from it i think Part of a lot of the disconnect and things that we're having right now is that people aren't getting exactly what they want. Uh, uh, but I think that there is going to be a large faction of people who mature beyond this, just give me what I want phase. Um, and I think those people are going to actually long for exciting, entertaining content 
that actually gives them something beyond just the content. And I feel like that behind the scenes stuff, like the more nitty gritty niche stuff is going to actually start to appeal to a lot more people. And there's the content that generates more content. And what I mean by that, one of my favorite videos on the entire internet is this girl who didn't know she was being filmed watching the end of Rogue One and just turning into a sobbing mess when the TANF-4 takes off out of the ship. Me watching her be so very visible and present with her emotions as Darth Vader's walking through the hallway, cutting everyone in half, and then the reveal of Princess Leia and all of that, like that, like she's crying and I'm crying with her. Yeah. So you have this extra layer, which the studios don't obviously control, of, of yeah. sustaining that thirst, that need from the audience with content that generates other content. Yeah, I think because of the media ecosystem that uh, we live in, like as much content as you can possibly put out, I absolutely think that there's an audience for every morsel of behind the scenes footage. Like it will be used and purposed for something. I definitely do think that. Even if it's not appreciated at the time it happens. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There are just two things I want to mention really quick. J.W. Rinsler or Jonathan Rinsler, who wrote The Making of Episode 3, and then he went back and did The Making of Star Wars, Making of Empire Strikes Back, and Making of Return of the Jedi. Those are must-reads for anyone who's even a little bit curious about the making of those movies. And sadly, Jonathan Rinsler passed away either within the last year or the last two years, very young. But those books are so insightful. Like, you get the conversation where Han and Irvin Kirshner came up with, I love yeah. you, I know. And you can hear the the audio clip because someone had mic'd them for some other behind the scenes thing. So you literally can hear and read the process of them arriving at, I don't think Han would say I love you and like that whole thing. And it's just amazing. So I would just be remiss if I didn't mention Jonathan Rinsler on a podcast about the behind the scenes material because... I think that those are definitely on the reading list for this course. The other thing I just want to touch on really quickly, I love the behind the scenes of the Mando stuff that we're getting on Disney+. Plus. Like when I saw the volume stage for the first time and how they were achieving all this stuff, and when I saw all this new technology that they were employing to recreate practically, using virtual technology to recreate something like practical, like I was like, this is blowing my mind. And I love that they obviously do recognize that there's an audience for people that want to know how this is done. And then after the last season, they did a whole episode about how they brought Luke Skywalker back. And I really appreciate that they know that there's an audience for this and it will still continue. And I just love that at this age, I'm still like, oh, man, there's a new episode of the behind the scenes of Star Wars. I'm going to stop what I'm doing. I'm going to watch it immediately and just have my jaw drop on the floor by seeing how they're making this magic happen. I've got two responses to this. I have a whole new appreciation now going into the tech industry, going into VR. Um, I really love that I got to see this like AR projection wall and even talk to you about it prior to it becoming like the big, uh, uh, the big must do. And me trying to be like, Josh, you got to get in on this. This is going to be huge. And it's like, all right, yeah, cool. This will be a thing. And then it, <laughs> it blows up before, uh, uh, before we can even get our hands around it. But what I've seen now is another, another reason why behind the scenes is actually more important in a way that I couldn't have appreciated back in the day is because they're actually calling cards and you'll see that like 
Tesla is doing this and Facebook is doing this with or Meta, sorry, but they're doing behind the scenes thing to show that they are leading the industry. So they entice more people who are looking to be at the sure. head of the frontier to come work for them, which is something that I never appreciated about behind the scenes stuff before that it's not, it's not for my entertainment or that I get to see the window all the time that other, and it's not just for marketing. It's also just like straight up recruitment. It's like straight up, like we need to get people in the doors. It's a great recruiting Uh, tool. And, and, and it's been that way for a really long time. I mean, I, I can liken it more specifically to the horror world and the horror makeup effects community where you had guys like Tom Savini and and Rick Baker in the eighties who like kind of came out of nowhere and were like completely, you know, blowing everyone's minds away. Like those guys in the magazines or whatever, like were the reason that guys like Greg Nicotero and, and almost everyone else in the industry now started that career because Mm -hmm. the behind the scenes stuff, you know, seeing on how those effects were done and playing with the makeup kits and the prosthetics and, and mask making and all those techniques inspired all those guys to go, I want to do that. And they're the reason that we still have a practical makeup effects, you know, yeah. community in, in Hollywood. No. And even like Doug Chang and, and John Knoll, who, who it's interesting are now like the, the elder statesman of Lucasfilm and ILM, like John Knoll, he looked up ILM in the phone book when his dad was on a business trip to San Francisco. And he asked if they had like a tour or something that he could go on. And the guy on the phone was like, well, no, but like, if, if you just, if you come, like, we'll show you around. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And like, and like so many stories like that, I don't think they realized the recruitment tool that they were making. And I think now they do. Yeah, back then. And yeah. now they absolutely yeah. do. The future of behind the scenes, where all this is heading, especially as you just kind of spoke about how, how we, we're getting a look into how virtual production is made. Well, now that a lot of our, the, the process is being made in an interactive and these digital files that uh, we're going to start to step into, because I know people like me are going to want to be able to just step into the previous situation, get an opportunity to like try my hand at shaping the scene the way that I wanted to shape the scene, seeing how they did it, seeing up their files, like getting access and behind the scenes is actually going to probably be a lot more interactive than it was before. Well, there was something they released for Rogue One actually on the set of the Jeddah Street with all of the stormtroopers. Like, you know, there's like the tank that comes through and like, they had like a VR camera that they just sort of had on the side and they released a VR video where, you know, if you had like a headset, you would look around and like you were, you were on the set that day. I know that's not exactly what you're talking about. Uh, no, but that's a step right in the same direction. That's exactly yeah. that's that's exactly the same feeling or vibe that I feel like we're we're leaning towards because you just get to be that fly in the wall that I had always wanted to be when I was a kid, and yeah. now here we are, full circle. Exactly. I, I think eventually a lot of our entertainment is going to be interactive, <laughs> but I think in the 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 nearer term, you can't play The Last of Us and not go, "Wow, that's like the future of movies." But anyway. Uh, <laughs> I I think in the nearer term, interactive promotional materials, interactive BTS materials, interactive development materials, interactive world introduction materials, right? Especially, Mm. you know, assuming that they make new properties um, and not just rehash old ones, introducing people 
to the world. And I, I kind of wish they had done it with like, and maybe they did. And I didn't know about it. Like ready player one would have been a perfect opportunity. You know, like, uh, here's here, put your headset on, walk around the stacks. The movie comes out in two weeks, <laughs> you know, kind of sure. thing. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think you'll get, um, a lot more of that. I think it's mostly limited by the technology adoption right now, as opposed to a desire to do it. And file sizes and rights and not wanting anything to leak too soon. Like there's so, there's, there's a fair amount of reasons, uh, uh, justifiable reasons that they don't let uh, all that stuff out yet, but pretty soon it's going to be more cost effective for them to just let people access that stuff than make new stuff. That's, I mean, that's interesting. That's, that's, um, whole new world, whole new world guys. I don't know about you. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's not a conversation you can have with just anybody. I think that's probably true. Yeah. yeah. I think there's yeah. a lot of people that have <laughs> no idea, you know, who Phil Tippett is. Um, yeah. Oh, God. Wouldn't Phil be Tippett, able to yeah. offer, <laughs> offer much. Yeah. That regard. I'm surprised that we went through the entire conversation without mentioning Phil Tippett or Frank Oz because they tend to get featured. Uh, featured. I mean, they're, they're, that's where I learned their names. Was right. the behind the scenes film? Yeah, uh, and and, and or Richard I Anderson. almost mentioned I almost mentioned Ken Frank Ralston. Oz specifically during the 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 conversation of the Last Jedi because for all of the other moments and its willingness to to be open and upfront about some of the the dirtier bits of making that film, like it also is is packed full of schmaltzy highlights like when mark and frank reunite for the first yes, time that's that's and I mark's just, just sitting there watching yeah. frank Beautiful. work and frank has no idea that mark's behind him like it's gorgeous you know. yeah that, I just that's got, a little heartstring tugger for me absolutely i'm gonna go oh, watch yeah. that right now me too me too <laughs> i want to thank my guests jeff and bracy if you liked anything you heard please go to trashcompod.com where you can rate and review us and we are trashcompod across all social media and still don't have a close but we're always moving backwards and forwards backwards and forwards bracy backwards and forwards backwards, backwards and, and forwards. forwards have a good one everybody